0: The ultimate spud dinner is steamed with the jacket on a nice dollop of butter salt and a load of cracked pepper
1: Oh I'm getting hungry listening to this Do you love spuds?
2: I love potatoes oh, they're, they're so, so good, good. <laughs> yeah. I also love listening to all the people tell us about the different ways they cook potatoes Oh my
1: god What's your favourite
2: way? It's So good Me, creamy mash.
1: Creamy mash, potato, lots of butter.
2: Yeah. Loads of butter, loads of milk. Oh, you know, in Italy, they use olive oil instead of butter.
1: Oh, no, I didn't. Good good, good call.
2: Point of contention. So I have, as you know, I have an Italian stepdaughter and she gets disgusted when I put butter in the creamy mash.
1: That's because you don't put salt in your butter in Europe. That's a big problem. But anyway, come here. Do you have any idea why they call potato spuds?
2: Uh, I actually don't. I have right.
1: no idea. Okay, well, look, I'm tell you what, you're going to have to Google it. And before the end of this episode, come back to me with that information. There's some homework for you, Jack. But what do you know about them?
2: Uh, okay, well, I know that they are starchy, mm-hmm. basically. Um, I know that they came to Ireland from Peru. Mm-hmm. In, I think it's around 15th, 16th century, something like this. They came basically because Ireland was struggling to grow grain like we're yeah. not a very good kind of geography to be able to grow what was needed for to feed the population so yeah. it became the bread of the people let's say and we were great at growing potatoes so that's why they've kind of become such a key part of our of our diet but also actually the diet of the whole world so yeah. they're the fourth largest cultivated crop Whoa. Whoa in I the world yeah yeah and they're a great feeder
1: yeah and actually what strikes me i suppose about the potato in particular in ireland is the story of the famine which we've all known you know because ireland did feed itself on the potato and we became completely reliant on the lumper mm. for i suppose it's food source and at the time you know the population really exploded because this potato is just really easy to grow you know you'd put it in the ground and 10 weeks later there's a healthy nutritious meal for your family but uh do you remember those schoolbook uh, school book days and we learned about when the blight happened in 1845 46 and again in 48 like our whole country was absolutely devastated and that story of starvation and hunger related illness and mass emigration i mean ireland was devastated like we lost a quarter of our population during these years
3: mm.
1: and actually you know that is something we talked to um john mckenna he's a great friend of neighbor food um, and he told us about Ireland's culinary culture and our relationship with the potato. <laughs>
0: um, my name is John McKenna. Um, I've had the good fortune to write about Irish food for 30 years. And that's been particular good fortune because for 30 years, Ireland's food culture has improved exponentially year on year. And I don't believe there's any other part of our public culture about which you can say that. So. To have had the privilege of writing about Irish food and the people who produce that food really has been, for me, uh, incredible good luck because I've been able to see the way in which food and the importance of food and the respect for food, the respect for the people who produce and cook food has grown to an extraordinary extent over 30 years. It hasn't happened overnight, but it has gotten better every year. And I think that's the secret of why I'm not bold enough to be able to say Ireland has one of the great culinary cultures on the planet. Um, We're like the Johnny-come-latelys, like Denmark, like Australia, places which 25 years ago you would have written off. Now we're on the top of our game and we're in the Champions League of really, really good uh, culinary nations. So it's been very fortunate for me to be able to write about that and hopefully in some way kind of record what it has meant. The interesting thing, I think, when we discuss the potato is that Ireland's relationship with the potato is really paradoxical. We love it, but we shouldn't love it. Because the potato, like a faithless lover, let us down big time, not just once, but twice and three times. The consequences were catastrophic. And yet, for very many people, a meal, dinner especially, simply not dinner unless there's potatoes in one form or another and that's a really rather strange thing but i suppose it has the same cultural and emotional impact that one finds in relation to say mexico and corn or southeast asia and rice or north india and wheat Uh, you we love staples even though in many instances they have actually let us down so i suppose the interesting thing is why do we love the potato? And in some ways, even though I've no Irish, I think you could sum it up in one lovely expression. And pardon my Irish, but it is, go marry me be oh, and I'm sure a May we be here to do this again next year. And to me, that explains the attraction of the potato. It's the regeneration. The crop comes again, and therefore all is well. And I think when you have something that is your staple, and in the 1840s, The Irish really grew one crop, the potato, and they grew one potato, the lumper. The lumper let them down, and yet we still can't give up on the potato. And I think it's because when the stalks grow, when the flowers open, we know, even though we can't see it, but we know that magical tuber is under the ground and it's going to sustain us. And who doesn't love, you know, the very archetype of the potato which is the potato with milk and butter whether it's the nurturing for the child or it's the invalid food it is the perfect complete food and I think that's why we love it we love it from the you know it may well be the first solid food that a lot of children get after milk and it may be amongst the last things we ever eat in the form of a mash and just in respect of that you know when you think about somebody who expresses the respect that the potato deserves and if i could i'd like to take you to a lovely restaurant in county kildare and ballymore eustace called the ballymore inn it's run by an extraordinary cook georgito sullivan and i mention it in particular because they make the best champ i have ever eaten they make the best champ i've ever eaten in any restaurant and they actually have in the ballymore inn a potato lady they have a lady who checks the mash the right amount of potatoes right amount of scallions the right amount of milk because all of these things matter and when you and when you get that magic when you get this seemingly simple thing perfectly aerated, um you can't eat anything better you can try harder my own um screw-up story with potatoes was the time i tried to make Joël robuchon's pommes puree in which he beats roughly half a pound of of butter into two pounds of potato in other words what he essentially makes manually is a butter sauce which is held together with potatoes when i finally ended beating the butter into the potato my arm hurt so much i couldn't actually lift the fork to eat it and we don't do that in ireland we we know how to judge when a potato whether it's a baked potato or it's just mash or it's champ or it's called canada, we know when it's right. And I think knowing when it's right is something we share. Even though people nowadays say, oh, the Irish don't eat as many potatoes as, as we used to. Probably true, but it's still, in a sense, a social glue, a cultural glue that binds us. And I think the secret is it is there for us from birth till death. And it is there for us because when the stalks grow, when the flowers open, when there's the risk of blight, which we all have to live with. So we know the risk is real. You can lose the crop every single year. When you get to May, June, and you're worried about cloudy, slightly rainy conditions, you know what is at stake. You can lose the crop. And then if you can save the crop, and bring it in and somebody once told me in West Cork the secret with a new potato is don't let it anywhere near water just brush the dirt off and then steam it and then salt and butter that's it that's as good as eating gets and I think we understand that in Ireland and I don't think we ever forgot it which I think is one of the reasons why today we have such a dynamic food culture
4: Oh, come here,
2: it's not It's not the way you cook it It's who's doing it and who you're with A little bit of um, Sweet chilli sauce on the top there Scrumptious nom, 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 nom.
1: Oh, potato love It's alive and well
2: Yeah, and it is it's so. Like I've loved doing this episode Because just listening to everybody talk about potatoes Because they're always just like a secondary thing And now everyone's like just really getting mm. stuck Into the, the comfort that is a spud But it's not just for cooking on your dinner table. Potatoes also make crisps Mm. or, well, that's what we call them in Ireland and in the UK, but they're also known as potato chips. You know, they're those really lovely, delicious things that are great with a pint or all the time, really. So (laughs) when I was looking into crisps, I kind of found a little bit of a gem I didn't realize before. So did you know that the process of flavoring crisps was invented in Ireland?
1: Wow. Are we ready
2: yeah. for our
4: next guest? When the potato met Joe, it was a, a a love affair for life. Wow. Who is this that we're talking to?
2: OK, so this is Peter Murphy. He's the son of Joe Spud Murphy, the founder of Tato Crisps, and it's a genius name. And it was concocted by Joe's squabbling children at the dinner table in the family household.
3: You say Tato, I say bato. <laughs> The the
4: name Tato, first of all, came about between my sister Yvonne and my my late brother Joseph, and they called uh, Tato, Potato, Potato, Tato.
5: Potato! He said Tato.
4: You know, in between saying, it's mine, it's mine, it was Tato, Potato. So they both claim that they invented the name, and they would have been children of three or four at the time. But that's actually where the word Tato came from. Uh, and and that's gospel
2: it must have really been amazing growing up with the god of spuds as your dad right
4: yeah totally yeah it was um it it was a peter pan existence if you really want to know it Um,
2: okay a world of magic with an entrepreneurial dad who knew no boundaries so peter told us about what ireland was like at that time
4: was Ireland in the 1950s was a very different place than it is today. And, you know, most people who live, listen to podcasts uh, probably don't fully realize just how rural Ireland really was. Uh, You know, a good job was one goes into the civil service, one goes into the priesthood and the others, uh, maybe one gets the farm and and the others emigrate. I mean, that was the story of Ireland, your family, everybody's family, my family. So... When Tato came along, there was not an awful lot of successful Irish entrepreneurs.
2: And Joe Spud Murphy was one of those.
4: In fact, the biggest thing that Joe Murphy ever did in his life is that the first ever investment in Ireland by an American company was Beatrice Foods of Chicago, Illinois, who my father met. And they said, Joe, we love what you're doing. And he said, look, I need 3 million to build this state-of-the-art new factory. Irish banks don't want to lend me any money. He says, well, why why not just give you 4 million and we'll make sure we've got enough over and we can build the best of the best of the best. And that really was the start of American entrepreneurial investment in Ireland. And it took... Uh, a hole on the wall, company called Tato, and a global brand at the time called Beatrice Foods, who there was a relationship between the two companies to 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 understand that Ireland could be a huge manufacturing base. And very few people in Ireland actually realize that today.
2: Well, this is news to me, but what blew my mind before all this capital investment was the aha flavoring crisps moment. And I asked Peter, how did that even come about?
4: was my father always had a very sweet uh, um, tooth, I suppose. And he used to stop on the way home every day to buy a a packet of crisps, as you say. And they were always stale because they'd come over the boat from England. And in those days, you didn't really have foil packaging with nitrogen flushing in the bags. It was very simple. And uh, one day he was challenged by a lady in a certain store Down by the Sea Point near Dunleary. And she said, uh, Mr. Murphy, if you can make it, if you stop complaining, you think you can make a better potato crisp, why don't you go and make your own effing potato chip crisp? So, challenge accepted.
2: He went away and he did just that.
4: And obviously, he, he was a born entrepreneur. Yeah. So, in those days, they didn't flavor them and there would be a tiny, not unlike how you would get a little salt bag, you know, at, at Burger King or whatever today, and you would flavor the crisps yourself. Um, a, it was cheaper, uh, and two, it, it, it meant that the product uh, supposedly stayed fresh for a moment longer. But the emergence of cheese and onion um, came by because of economic necessity. Uh, there was a challenge. Uh, there wasn't enough money and he had an abundance of cheese powder and he had an abundance of onion powder and he decided, well, we're going to have a new flavor this week and it's going to be called cheese and onion. And that is ultimately, and in those days, you would set up a little printer, you'd put in the flavors and then you'd pull off the label machine and you'd stick the sides of the can and you'd put a little... Uh, sticker on 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 the pack, so that's ultimately where cheese and onion came from. Uh, both were ingredients of another flavour, and that flavour became the best-selling flavour. And Tater were the first company in the world uh, to to use cheese and onion as a flavour. So, sometimes when you think a little bit outside of the box, uh, uh, things good things happen. And he. Uh, his whole life, he he lived that philosophy. So, just because somebody says you can't do something, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't. You know, Phil Knight in Nike created the slogan "Just Do It." Well, Joe Murphy was Phil Knight, but he was Phil Knight back in 1956, not uh, not 76. And that really is the story. But but that's also Irish entrepreneurship, and it's Irish uh, engagement, and it's Irish uh, Irish know-how. You know, it's it's. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah isn't that such a good story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Tato are such a huge company here, aren't they?
2: Yeah, and it was really actually great talking to Peter and getting it from the son's perspective. Um, but I loved how we kind of got into the being ahead of the curve with all the marketing, mm. using a mascot and. Uh, this is what companies were doing in the states but here it was completely revolutionary you know yeah
1: totally and he had another great story about the delivery guys because they were always super well dressed like they had sports blazers ties gray flannels and always a spare pair in the van just in case
2: (laughs) i love it i don't feel like that was revolutionary i feel we've taken a few steps back in that regard (laughs) now (laughs)
1: yeah there was also the time that they drove around croke park like moving billboards during the matches that was pretty clever
2: yeah, very, very clever. Yeah, and uh, he also mentioned about how there was a couple of dud flavours. Mm-hmm. And one that he mentioned, which actually kind of made me gawk a small bit, was uh, celery. Oh, yuck. Um, yeah. yeah.
1: And um, they put extra salt into the pub versions of the crisps.
2: Yeah, and you were saying you remember this, no?
1: Oh, I totally remember
2: crisps. Yeah, I do you remember them being really salty?
1: So salty, like four or five times saltier than anything else. But it was great because you could ex- drink extra lemonade then. As a result, I think but they got
2: pulled. They got pulled off the shelves. Those ones. <laughs> they definitely didn't last did. very long. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, another good one. And he, like, do you remember that Tato used to have um, the little kind of pick up your rubbish symbol on the back? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that he and his siblings had to do was pick up these empty crisp packets down at the pier. And his dad made them, like, count out the different crisp manufacturers, but no doubt he always had a smile on his face when there was six times as many Tato crisps as any others.
2: <laughs> okay, I'm getting a good a good picture of him.
1: Yeah, it was nice chatting to Peter.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course, Tato is no longer an Irish company. It's actually owned by a giant German snack company which um personally i feel is very unfortunate but there are a load of other irish you know uh crisp brands now that are amazing and (laughs) i guess it's good to just make a nod and say you know that the innovation started here first
1: yeah sure but let's talk about like the little guys do you know i mean what about these family farms that grow potatoes for sale in their community how do you think they're getting on
6: Hi, I'm Maria Flynn from Bally Farm in Drogheda, County Louth and we are known as Bally Farm potatoes. So in
1: 2007, Maria and her husband David, a second generation potato farmer, took over the family farm and realised they were actually in bad shape because the farm was struggling and Maria knew that only growing rooster and queen potatoes was just not going to keep their head above water.
6: We, it just wasn't working for us. The money wasn't being made. In actual fact, we were losing money.
1: Now you'd ask, like, why was that when it had been a proven success for the generation before?
6: What's happened in a relatively short space of time in this country is that there is no place for the family farm anymore. That You know, the medium-sized family farm, um, they just can't make a living anymore. And it's a real, real shame. It's because, basically, Um, there's such a low value on food. It's very expensive to grow food, be it potatoes, whatever you're growing. It's very expensive. It's even more expensive now because we've got all these EU guidelines to guide us and sprays to use and all of this kind of thing.
2: Okay, sorry to cut in here, but this is actually a huge point that Maria just made. It's not really understood how much it costs to grow food. And the problem is that we as humans are producing food in the cheapest places and then transporting them all over the world. And I wonder, as climate change is tackled, will we start to see local food becoming less expensive with you know, carbon taxes and different things?
1: Yeah, who knows? But you know, these guys were, were struggling and their back was up against the wall and they needed to do something about it. And Maria, I suppose she kind of fell back into what was her happy place and that was food. And they took a risk.
6: I decided to do something um, with potatoes that wasn't being done in Ireland. That was a bit different. That might capture the imagination. So we we grew purple potatoes. But my target market was chefs.
1: Now, this worked. And it actually worked a treat. And Maria suddenly found a tribe of curious and experimental chefs knocking on her door through the power of social media.
6: You know, this is us planting the potatoes. And I used to do like a hashtag. And it would be hashtag day 20 hashtag day 30 so you, you could see you know the progression of the potatoes growing and believe it or not by the time you know the potatoes were ready to be harvested I already had a little band of chefs following me and kind of raising my ship really do you know what I mean they were telling their friends and things like that so I was already more more advanced when we got to harvest than I ever thought I would be.
1: Now Jack you probably know loads about heritage and heirloom potatoes but for most of us they're pretty weird and kind of wonderful in color. So what kind of varieties do you know about?
2: I mean, I'm, I've heard of a few, but to be honest, it is it is actually really, really new, even for someone that would have been looking around for, for things like this a couple of years ago. I, I mean, there's Purple Rain, as mm-hmm. we heard from Caitlin Ruth, which mm-hmm. I've tasted. And then there's is there ones called pink furs or no they're apples yeah yeah,
1: there's a whole load of them so so we're talking red for apple yukon gold mayan gold red emily they all just sound so exotic and they look exotic too because they've got colors like deep purple violet and even ones with little pink circles running around them you know they're not your average spuds and to be honest if i didn't know what i was about to eat then what should i expect them to taste like we'll have to ask maria
6: The first time I ate Violetta, which is the purple flesh potato, I had this, oh my God, within seconds, I was back in my granny's kitchen, my dad's mum, and she made this stew. I loved her stew. I'd just eat it with a spoon out of the pot. Simple as that. And you could taste the potato in it. Um, And the first time I ate Violetta, it wasn't the colour, it wasn't anything else. I could taste my Nana's stew. And I really think that's because I could taste potato. You get
1: what I'm trying to say? Oh yeah, we get that one, all right. Now, as we know, the global pandemic in 2020 came along and that mighty word, pivot, is back again because things dramatically changed for Bally McKinney
6: at this time. So when the COVID outbreak happened and basically all of our customers closed overnight, uh, we had to find another route to market to sell our produce.
1: And at first worried would the Irish consumer be even willing to pay a premium price for these old school, honest potatoes with their strange looks and weird colours, the family kicked into action. They opened their spud shack on the grounds of the farm, quickly got supplying into their neighbour food
6: markets and other shops and realised that, yeah, Irish consumers were ready to embrace this change. And this is where the Irish public really got behind us and basically kept our gates open, so to speak, until our lovely chefs can get back on their feet.
1: In fact, they even became a case study on the Leaving Cert business paper in 2021. Wow! Who is Eden humble spuds now? So in my opinion, Bally McKenney Farm are a complete inspiration and a shining light for small farmers around the country. And every season out, they have different varieties of their speciality potatoes. So if you want to talk spuds, go meet Maria because they also supply a few of our neighbour food markets.
6: The neighbour food concept for us was, um, it could be potentially a game changer for businesses like ours. Um, to be able to come to one drop off point and uh, have people pick up our produce so we're not having to drive around and deliver door to door. That's amazing. And I think moving forward, even when we're all out the other side of COVID and everything else, I think it's going to be massively popular because people can come up here, for example, and uh, some Saturdays I'll hang around for a little while when when we're allowed to do that and to meet people and to talk to them about the potatoes and things like that. And that just human connection has been missing in our food chain. And I think it's just really important. And this is what this gives us. I love
1: mashed potatoes. It's really kind of comfort food.
4: I mean the spud is
2: an experience. I mean that's 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 all there is to it.
0: There's nothing better. And I'd eat just a plate of them. And I
2: do regularly. Plates of spuds.
1: Plates of them.
2: <laughs> would you, would you um would you live on plates of spuds?
1: I doubt it. I mean it'd be a bit bland, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, but like, can you actually live on potatoes alone?
1: There's no way. I mean, would it be healthy enough? Although I suppose like for hundreds of years, millions of Irish people did, but I'm guessing they did have other things in their diet too, right?
2: Yeah, you'd be assuming they were foraging for berries and the like Mm -hmm. and different meats and stuff. Well, several years ago, I came across a man in India who claims to do just that. Plates of spud. So, yeah. So after some help from several Indian friends, we managed to get him on a call.
5: This is the Alu Baba. So he has been eating potatoes from 50 years and almost 12 potatoes a day. He boils the potatoes, adds a little salt and chili powder, and that's his way of consuming it. And also that uh, he gets uh donations of potatoes almost a kg or two kg or three kg some people keep coming and giving him something or the other so that's again a good thing you know and the earlier time he used to do, uh cook the potatoes on live fire just like grilled. and now he's just boiling because of his teeth so assume that he has a soft like he can't uh, chew much so he Prefers it okay. soft, like a mashed potato. Yeah. So why yeah. why
2: Vikram? Can you can you ask him why? Yeah. Why he's eating
5: potatoes for fishing? Everywhere, but everywhere possible. Every fusion. Yes. He, yeah. So he eats potatoes because it's available. It's available everywhere in the country. First thing. Second, it's reasonable. Third, it keeps him focused on one direction. He wants his vision to be clear that he, he can focus on one thing. That's why he eats one particular thing.
1: Wow. There is a lot to be learned from that guy. I can't imagine only eating potatoes in my life.
2: Yeah, I know. He's actually like a spiritual kind of leader. And it was kind of amazing being in his presence, actually. There was a real energy about it. Mm-hmm.
1: And we had a lot of fun with this because even tracking him down was a bit of a mission, right?
2: Yeah, I found a phone number online that was technically for him, but it wasn't. And it was a guy who said he knew him and that he was like <laughs> half an hour drive away. So the guy said he was willing to drive there and hold the phone up for the Alubaba to talk. Because he doesn't have electricity or anything where he, he lives.
1: Oh God, what a laugh. I'm telling you, I love yeah. the internet. But I also want to give a huge thanks to Vikrant because he's the chef at the Lodge Bar in Myrtleville in Cork. And he helped us um, translate it. I mean, we absolutely wouldn't have had a clue what he was saying other than potatoes um but as we waited for the alibaba we did have a good chat with vikrant about what the potato means to him because obviously coming from india it's a culture similar to ireland and they value the spud as much as we do right
2: mm, absolutely yeah the question i wanted to ask you is potato is a big deal back in india but it is. now you live in ireland it's a- do you feel that the yeah what do you think about potatoes versus your life in india and potatoes now that you're in Ireland
5: I would say over here it's way more way more consumed as we consume back in India now in India 70% of the population is uh vegetarian okay and potato acts like a major uh, filling dish okay so most of the people who are working they, they would rather eat a paratha and live uh, like you know they can survive for at least seven to eight hours without eating anything so that's why it's 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 meant to be a healthy breakfast over there. Alu paratha. Then uh, again, every different city, like every 25 kilometers, you'll you'll come up with a different alu recipe. So you'll find, away from 25 kilometers, you'll find uh, alu tadka. Then you'll find uh, alu gobi. <laughs> you know, Every city has their own alu uh, thing. But it's nice, like, you know, because it's very versatile. and And with the spices and everything, it's very versatile. And that's why people choose potatoes over any other vegetables, you know. But that's, that's, that's like a fact, you know. It's been like a fact like forever now. I don't know how long, but since the time I've been eating food or cooking food, I've only seen potatoes over there. But you'll be surprised. Most of the restaurants have reduced on potatoes now. Because you, you end up having potatoes every time, you know, in, uh, in, whenever you're, you're in-house. So they have reduced it. So things things are changing slowly, but I still have a strong feeling that Ireland is way more uh, potato consumed market.
1: So we're coming to the end of this potato odyssey. Did you find out why they're called spuds yet, Jack?
5: I
2: did. So I googled it and this is literally straight from Wikipedia. The name spud for a potato comes from the digging of soil or a hole prior to the planting of potatoes. Some Englishmen who did not fancy potatoes formed a society for the prevention of unwholesome diet. The initials of the main words in this title gave rise to spud.
1: Unbelievable. Damn.
2: Horrible as well, no? <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to use the word spud anymore.
1: That, that's a good, it's a good story, though. Like, it's pretty beautiful. But you know what else is beautiful is just the creative ways that potatoes are used. And I'm not talking about card fillers on our plate because did you know that I'm a big whiskey fan?
2: Yes, but. I absolutely do. You grow up in a pub, Jolene? <laughs> yes,
1: yes, and I eat <laughs> loads of pub crisps. But tell me now before the whiskey, we had poutine.
2: Although the Scots take credit for inventing whiskey, it was first distilled by the Irish centuries ago. Today, there are still some Irishmen who still tinker with the basic recipe. The home brewed fire water they make tastes stronger than whiskey, it's used for home remedies, and it's illegal. But Ireland has a strong tradition of potin making, known to us as Moonshine.
1: Okay, so a bit of a surprise to many, but potheen is no longer illegal. And there's actually an exciting scene of new distilleries and experimentation happening here in Ireland. And even you're going to find potin fueled cocktail bars like Bar 1661 in Dublin helping us rediscover the spirit. And with this, we are going to talk to Michael O'Boyle. He is the man behind Boyleock Distillery in Donegal. And he gave us a little FaceTime tour of his poteen hideaway.
3: I kind of started off with just small stills, uh, you know, really like all the way from 10 litres, bigger, a l- little bit bigger. And then, you know, this is the, the kind of commercial it's probably a nano distillery. <laughs> you know, the next, the next level up is micro. We'll get there maybe sometime next year.
1: <laughs> so the self-described nano distillery is situated in his old cottage overlooking Mulroy Bay in County Donegal. He's also recently began to distill whiskey, amongst other spirits, and this makes him the smallest whiskey distillery on the island. He makes his potine using the traditional but somewhat unusual ingredient of potatoes and he told us about the long association of potatoes with the spirit, particularly in his home county of Donegal.
3: You know, if you ask the man on the street, you know, what's potchin made of he'll say, potatoes, that isn't really correct, but there is an association there because it, it was used to make potchin. and, you know, that's, that's true. I would say the availability of the potato everywhere. And uh, such big yields of potato meant that people were using it in potching production. And, you know, it became so widespread it just got added to the mash bill of barley and other uh, oats and other grain. And I'm sure that the the potato then became a, a pretty reasonable part of a lot of potching makers' mash bill.
1: Yeah, makes sense. Now, as you might know, Donegal is the hero county for potato growing. And continuing with traditions and heritage that's specific to his area, it obviously makes sense to use local ingredients.
3: You know, Donegal, you can't get grain here. People don't grow grain. Uh, You would have to go to the east part of Donegal to to get grain. It's uh, down in the Lagan Valley. There's a lot of uh, grain growing. I would presume that a lot of people were... You know, they would have to go out and buy grain, which is a cash commodity. So, you know, they might have enough cash to buy a certain weight of grain, but then they have a, the potato, which they have lots of, and they're supplementing the the grain with the potato. You know, that that's my take. There are people, you know, even in the potching industry now, and they think, you know, potato shouldn't even be allowed in potching.
1: But that's not going to bother Michael because he's got plenty of potatoes just growing outside the door. Now, he showed us that a mere 10 metres from the drill to the still, these potatoes are definitely from the source. But more importantly, he's continuing traditions and heritage specific, that's his area. And that's important for the provenance of his spirit. But what does the potato flavour bring to his poutine?
3: I find that maybe at the first step of distillation, you're getting a, a far more... Uh, kind of a potato, you know, a fresh potato kind of a a, a flavor from the spirit. But then when you uh, let it settle and you know you have to let the spirit age a little bit that flavor kind of rolls over then into a kind of a kind of a more of a savory kind of umami kind of a kind of a flavor kind of it it, it changes I think significantly from the distillation to the bottling you know the 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 flavor and I think gives it more of an earthiness
1: and what he does now is he rests the spirit in seasoned barrels of oak sherry or port for up to 10 weeks and because these barrels are really small they impart a full but mellow finish to the spirit it's quite the surprise so Jack will we leave it there that's Puchin the spirit with a historic past and a bright future Thanks to the people like Boylock Distillery and the Mulroy Bay Poutine Collection, which you really got to check out.
2: And a big thank you to everyone else who contributed this week. There's John McKenna from the mm-hmm. McKenna's Food Guides. There's Maria Flynn from Bally McKenney Farm in County Louth. There's Vikrant Nadu at the Lodge in Myrtleville and the Alu Baba from Pushkar, Rajasthan. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who sent us in their favourite ways to eat the yeah. lovely potatoes. Nom, 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 nom,
4: nom, nom. Well, I never tried this, but this is the best way. Down in an Island, all the people on the island told me the best way if you were ever going out to catch mackerel was to bring back a bucket of seawater and cook the new potatoes in the seawater and then have them with your mackerel. Now that sounds just like potato sexiness, I think.